Well, I heard from uh, many of you this uh, week that last week's message was quite convicting, and I think today will probably be a little bit of the same. But as I was talking to a brother this morning, hopefully also encouraging as we turn our attention back to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Well, in 1865, Frenchman Edouard de Lebeau, well, I don't know, the French people in here, Terry, was that horrible? Yeah. <laughs> La Boulet, La Boulet. There we go, that's better. Terry might know who that is, but he proposed the idea of presenting a gift to the United States from the people of France. La Boulet was an ardent supporter of America, and since we were coming up on the 100-year anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, it was his desire to commemorate the occasion with a gift, with a monumental gift. And so listening to the, the pitch, there was a sculptor by the name of Frederic Auguste Bartholdi. I got Terry's approval. And since Laboulet and Bartholdi shared their love for America's ideals on liberty and freedom, which was made even more evident because of the recent abolition of slavery, they wanted to erect a universal symbol, an emblem that pointed to the friendship between France and America, but more importantly, for their mutual desire for freedom and liberty. Many of you know what I'm talking about. It is liberty enlightening the world, or you know it as the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty weighing 450,000 pounds, standing 305 feet. It's a worldwide symbol now. Everyone knows the Statue of Liberty. Also referred to as the Mother of Exiles, her crown represents light with spikes evoking sun rays extending out to the world, and she's holding up a torch, leading people away from oppression away from darkness to the light of America, as it were, leading the weary to liberty. And the tablet that she has in her hand, you know this, there's an inscription with July 4th, 1776, which is a reminder of the law that ensured our independence. But also down at her feet, there are broken shackles and chains symbolizing the end of slavery. And as you know, the Statue of Liberty stands as a beacon of hope and a freedom from oppression. But as I think of the Statue of Liberty, I think there's something even greater in symbol. There are living sculptures that God has placed on this earth to be a beacon of light. You see, Christians have been called to extend their light into a dark, oppressed, and broken world. And our message is also a message of freedom. Our message is a message of liberty, but our freedom and liberty is an eternal one. Free from the shackles of sin and death. And so our symbol, our message is the message of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And we as Christians are called to be these beacons of light. Shedding our light, showing our light throughout a dark and broken world. And as we come back to Philippians, Paul is going to highlight this in this section that we'll be looking at this morning. We learned that last week that God is uh, working in us 
salvation. And it is our responsibility now, as God has worked this in us, to work it out. We don't earn our salvation. We don't merit our salvation. But we live out our salvation, which is our sanctified life, that process of becoming more and more holy. And you say, well, why is God so committed to our sanctification? Why is he committed to our personal holiness? And the answer to that is because a sanctified life shines in such a way that it points to the source of that light. Much in the same way that the moon reflects the sun, so we too as Christians are to reflect the light of the sun. And Philippians is a reminder that for Christians, we are to live in such a way that our heavenly citizenship is actually evident to all. Everyone who sees and observes our life should be able to tell why we are different than the rest of the world. The church of Jesus Christ is here on planet Earth to be a unified, joy-filled gospel witness to the world. But that witness will be greatly diminished by sin. And the sin that Paul kind of strangely points to first is the sin of grumbling and complaining. You remember that uh, Epaphroditus came to Paul. Paul is in prison. And he brings a message. And it is love. Epaphroditus talks about the, the, the Philippians' love for Paul, their desire to see Paul continue to grow in his ministry. But Epaphroditus always, also comes with a message that there's dissension, there's some personal disagreements among two members of the church, two ladies, Iodia and Syntyche. And so Paul writes back to the church and sends the message by way of Epaphroditus to remind them, real simply, of the preciousness of the gospel. What does the gospel do in the lives of Christians? Well, the gospel unifies. And as Christians advance the gospel, we realize that we stand in opposition against the world. And so Paul is writing back to the Philippians to encourage them to stand firm, to stand against opposition, to be unified, same mind, same heart, same soul, same goal, same purpose as they advance the gospel. And he also reminds them that they will not be the kind of light that they are called to be if they continue on with this complaining and grumbling and murmuring and bickering with one another. The reality is, is a complaining life is not a compelling life. The world is not going to take a look at us and see us complaining and say, ooh, I want a piece of that. But a grateful life and a grateful people and a grateful church become a living apologetic and a testimony to the goodness and grace of God. And so we return to verse 14. Open your Bibles, if they're not open already, to Philippians 2.14, and this is what Paul writes to the church. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to boast because I do not run in vain nor labor in vain. Now in verse 14, we spent all of last week looking at the prohibition and today, as we come to verse 15 and 16, we are going to look at the purpose for the prohibition. 
And that is our outline this morning, the purpose for the prohibition. And there's four reasons that Paul gives here in this text for why we are to do all things without grumbling and disputing. Here's reason number one, their status as children. Here we're going to focus on who we are, our identity as children of God. Reason number two is their station in life, where we are, where God has sovereignly, providentially put us, our status as children, our station in life, and reason number three, their shine as lights. This is how we're to live. God has given us clear instructions that we are to live in a certain way. How do you summarize that? We are called to shine here in a dark world. And reason number four, why they are to do all things without grumbling and disputing is because ultimately the Christian contains, possesses the saving message of the gospel. And that is what we are to proclaim. So do not grumble, Paul says, because of who you are. Do not grumble because of where you are. Do not grumble because of how you are to live, and do not grumble because of what you are to proclaim. So those will be the hooks that we hang our outline on. And if you are taking notes, here's the main idea for this morning. When we stop grumbling, and instead we grow in gratitude, we will have the kind of light-bearing impact that God desires on our dark, sinful, and condemned world. Let me say it one more time. When we stop grumbling, church, and instead we grow in gratitude, we will have the kind of light-bearing impact that God desires on our dark, sinful, and condemned world. The reality for all of us this morning is that when we grumble, we hamper our witness, and we harm our testimony to an unbelieving world. And so Paul provides both a prohibition and the purpose for the prohibition because he wants the Philippians to be drawing people to Christ and to the gospel rather than repelling them. So let's look at these four purposes. Reason number one, we said because of their status. Verse 15, so that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. And this verse begins with that henna clause. It's a purpose statement. It's the result. See, obviously, we should avoid grumbling because it's offensive to God. It dishonors God. But that alone would be sufficient to say we got to stop doing it. But Paul adds to that and says it's not only offensive to God, but it sends the wrong message to the world. And so Paul wants us to pay close attention to the impact our grumbling has on a watching world. What will result, church, as we stop grumbling? Paul says you're going to show yourselves to be blameless and innocent. That word blameless there, it's just a verb that means to find fault. But it has what we call an alpha primitive. An alpha primitive is simply the prefix a or alpha before a word, That means not just to find fault, but you can't find fault. So it negates the word. It's like our word moral and amoral, right? One is good, one is bad. So to be blameless here in this context means that you can't be criticized for doing evil. You are irreproachable. There's no way that you can be blamed for doing evil. Pastor Scott, he would always say that a blameless man is a Teflon man. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, you throw a charge against him, and it doesn't stick. He's a Teflon man. He's blameless. In the Old Testament, that word is used in relation to a number of people. The first is Abraham, where God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis, and he says, Abraham, or Abram, walk before me, and he tells him, and be blameless. You know Job. At the beginning of Job, we read this, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man, the Bible describes, was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then the Lord's own testimony to Satan is, have you considered my servant Job? And then he says, for there is no one like him on the earth. Why? Because he is a blameless man and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And as you move throughout the Old Testament, you see this characteristic of not being able to be accused of any sin. And one of the things that sticks out is Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, you have these people who hated Daniel and wanted Daniel dead, but they realized that they couldn't accuse him of anything worthy of death. And so this is what Daniel 6, 5 says. These men said, we're not going to find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of God. And so they made up a law because they knew that Daniel would continue to pray, and that was the only way that they could attack his character because he feared God rather than fearing man. You flip on over to the New Testament, and we see that Luke is calling John the Baptist's parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, blameless as they are waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. Paul himself uses this term in Philippians 3.6 when he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness, which is in the law, Paul says, I was found blameless. And you say, well, was Paul really sinless? No, that's not what the word means. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. What he was saying was, as people observe my life, if they, if they watch how meticulously I obey the laws, in their mind, they would call me blameless. And so as we look at all those passages of Scripture, we have it clear in our minds that to be blameless means that you're judged by others as innocent. It was the second century when Tertullian, who's uh, leading the African church and the Christianity is spreading to the West. There was a refrain that was going on against the Christians, and the refrain was this, such and such a man is a good man, even though he's a Christian. You see, the heathens, they didn't like Christians. They didn't like what Christians represented. But they were compelled to confess that even though they didn't like Christians, Christians were the best of the men and the women during their time. And look, what Paul is saying here is, you will not have a reputation of being blameless. You're not going to be a blameless man or a blameless woman if you are in the habit of grumbling. Every time that you grumble about your lot in life, every time you grumble about someone else and what they're supposed to do or not supposed to do or what you don't like about a certain individual, every time we do that, we give the jury ample evidence to convict us, and we're no longer blameless. And that church is why the Lord takes grumbling so seriously, because grumbling actually hinders our testimony. 
And so the less we grumble, the more we communicate the goodness of God. When we do thing, all things without grumbling, we prove to be blameless. But Paul also says here, you prove to be innocent. That word innocent means to be unmixed, to be unadulterated. It's used in secular Greek to describe wine, wine that hasn't been mixed with water or a metal that hasn't been mixed with pollutants. The word is used only two other times in the New Testament. And the first is by Jesus when he says this in Matthew 10, 16. He said, you'll remember, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and what? Innocent as doves. That's the same word there. And the second use of the word, Paul exhorted the saints at Rome in Romans 16, 19. He says, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And what Paul does there in Romans, he's simply reiterating Jesus' point that believers are to live uncontaminated lives, unmixed with the world. And so when you put those two words together, blameless and innocent, what Paul is speaking about is moral purity. And when he uses them together, what he's saying is, be blameless in how others view you, but don't just stop there. Be innocent in who you really are. You see the distinction? To be blameless that others view you, that's our outward conduct, but there's an inward reality that also needs to be pure and unmixed. We've all had times where no one's pointing the finger at us, but we're guilty as can be. There are other times when we're not guilty, but people are pointing the finger at us. I just think of Jesus. Was he accused? Was he slandered? Was he blasphemed? Absolutely. But was he innocent? Without a doubt. God's desire for us, church, is that both our character and our conduct be pure, free from any legitimate accusation, and free from any foreign substance that would contaminate our life. And that's why, again, we have to be proactive in killing the sin of grumbling. Because as we grumble, we're contaminating our lives. We're contaminating our speech. We are sounding a lot like the world. And Paul is saying, look, if we're going to be an example of light, if we're going to attract the world to Christianity and to the goodness of Christ, then we need to cut it out. When we worship more than we whine, and when we proclaim more than complain, then we truly stand out. Rejoicing Christians, joyful churches, are a powerful witness. Because there's something to be said for someone who is just content. When everyone is complaining about politics, and prices, and housing market, and the president, and the vaccines, and the masks, and everything else, and you see a Christian confidently and quietly putting their hope in God, there's something about that that's attractive. And that's what Paul is saying, that, that we need to have this kind of character, blameless and innocent, because it improves our testimony to a watching world. But he also says that you will prove to be children of God without blemish. Look there in the text. Now, when he says that you will become children of God, he's not saying that you need to do this in order to become children of God. He's not saying that, uh, this happens before. Now, what he's saying is, you prove to be God's children when you actually act like it. There are many titles in the New Testament 
given for Christians, but none, I think you would agree, is more precious than child of God. When was the last time that you, Christians, just sat and marveled at the fact that you possess this title, this, this privilege, this position as a child of God, and that will never change? You're a child of the King. You're a child of the creator of the universe. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts so that now we can cry, Abba, Father. Your dad, your father, is the creator of the universe. And you've been given his Holy Spirit. And you've been given all these promises that are precious and true. His presence is with you. His protection is with you. His provision is with you, both now and for all eternity. But listen, all of those privileges come with a great responsibility. You've not only been adopted into God's family, church, but you've been adopted to partake of his very nature, which means that we don't just celebrate our family relationship, but we have an obligation to resemble our family, resemble our father. So Ephesians 5.1, we read it a little bit earlier, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, when our kids were really young, Jess and I, probably more of me, but I would give her a hard time because I'd say, oh, look, Kyla looks just like me. She's got the ears, she's got the lips, so she looks just like me. But then Titus and Judah came along and Jess was like, well, they look a lot more like me. And even today, we still argue about this. I say, oh, the kids look more like me. And she says, no, the kids look more like me. Obviously, they look like both of us. But when it comes to our kids' sin, that's when we kind of pass it off. I was going to say, hey, you sound a lot like your mom right there, or you're sounding a lot like your dad. We, we don't take credit for the sinfulness, but, but we love when we see ourselves and our kids. It's the same thing with the Lord. He loves to see his children reflect, reflect his beauty, his truthfulness, his purity, his uncontaminated nature. We, as God's children, are called to be pure and holy and wise, bearing that family resemblance. And in order to look more like God, we need to hear God. And in order to look more like God, we need to be near God. We need to be striving to obey him out of love and a holy fear. And listen, we don't want to do anything, anything that will bring shame upon our good father. And that's why Paul continues here. The mark of our adoption as sons and daughters is that we would be without blemish. Some translations just say above reproach. It simply means without stain, without spot. And it refers back to the Old Testament use of animal sacrifices. Now, what's significant is that Paul here in Philippians 2, I think he still has his mind in the Old Testament. Because I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, as Paul is still recounting in his mind Israel and they're complaining in the wilderness, but he goes here to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, and he takes us to the Song of Moses because the Song of Moses recounts what, what, what happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness. And starting there in verse 3, we read this, for I proclaim the name of the Lord, Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, 
For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. All beautiful. But now he gets to the children of Israel, and he says this in verse 5. They have acted corruptly toward him. Look at this. They are not his children because of their defect. He says that the children of Israel are not his children. And the reason is because of their defect. And you say, well, what, what's the defect? Well, we looked at that last week in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 says that they pursued evil things. They were idolaters. They were sexually impure. And the sin that he highlights is they were grumblers in the wilderness. And the shorthand for all of that sin, craving what's evil, sexually impure, grumblers, you know what the shorthand for that sin is? It's simply this. Israel were no longer children. Israel was defective because of their unbelief. They just didn't trust God. They didn't believe his word. They heard the promises and said, I don't believe you. And it was because of their unbelief that they fell in the wilderness. We talked about that verse uh, last week in Psalm 106, that at one point they believed his word. They sang praise to him. But then verse 13 of Psalm 106 says, they quickly forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel but instead, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things for them in Egypt, wondrous deeds in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the Red Sea. And they did not believe his word. But instead, they grumbled in their tents, and they did not listen to the voice of Yahweh. Listen, church, when we ignore the word of God, when we reject the word of God, when we don't put ourselves under the word of God, Nothing good happens. And the tendency to start grumbling and complaining happens more and more and more. Because the further we detach ourselves from the word, the less we'll be like the Lord himself. You see, Paul is addressing not just the external transformation that, like parents, we just want our kids to be like in line. right? Just don't make me look bad. But Paul's not just going for outward moral change. He's not trying to manufacture that. He's getting to the heart issue. And the heart issue is that they rejected God's word. And listen, church, this is my plug just for being under expository preaching and reading good theology and listening to good theology. Paul, remember, takes us to the incarnation. He takes us to the humiliation, the exaltation. Why does he do that? Because it is good theology that keeps us from sin. It's knowing the character and the nature and the beauty of Christ that keeps us from having a grumbling spirit. Emil Bruner, he illustrates the vast difference between transformation of the truly converted and then just the contriving of conduct for the sake of morality. This is what he says. I love this. He said, it is the difference between cut flowers in a vase and flowers growing out of the ground. He said, you can take those cut flowers and you can put them in a vase for a while and they'll flourish, but soon they're going to die. However, if you had left them in the ground, they would have continued to live and that is the difference. To think that you can maintain Christian ethics and morality without Christian doctrine is exactly like that. You can enjoy the beauty and the scent of those cut flowers for a night, but it won't last 
forever because the life of the flower has been severed. I love that quote, and he's basically just saying what Jesus said in John chapter 15. You know that passage well. I am the vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And Jesus says, look, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, what happens? He bears much fruit. And Jesus says, from, apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, any attempt to live a blameless life any attempt to live an innocent life, any attempt to live a blemish-free life will only be successful if we are continually, constantly, daily abiding in Christ. He has already made us clean. That's what the text says. We are already his children. We've already been justified. It was a once and for all thing. And so now, let God work out salvation in us by us being obedient to his word and that's where Paul takes us next. Do not grumble because of who we are. Our status is characterized by being blameless, above reproach. No serious accusation can stick. We're to be innocent. That's unmixed and pure. We're to be without blemish, faultless. So when Paul says to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, we understand what he's getting at. And you say, well, why is it so important that we present our bodies as a holy and living sacrifice? Why do we have to stay on this straight and narrow path? Well, Paul says here, because you are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we get to reason number two, because of their station in life. Where are they? Where are we Paul says we're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That, that word crooked, you'll be familiar with this, uh, comes from the word scolios, and it's where we get the English word scoliosis. I remember the last time I got an x-ray on my back, threw my back out, went to the chiropractor, took x-rays. He put the x-ray up, and he said, do you see that? And I said, yeah, um, that spine is crooked. Whose spine is that? He said, that's your spine. So, what? That's my spine? It was really crooked. And he says, yeah, that's probably just years and years of pounding and basketball, but that's your spine, and it's going to get worse. And I was diagnosed with degenerative discs. From a moral perspective, to be crooked means simply that you're no longer in alignment. Here's God's moral standard. Here's God's truth, and you have veered off. Well, not only is the generation in which we live crooked, but Paul also says that it's perverse. This is a much stronger word than crooked because it reveals how terribly twisted and distorted our world has become. See, to be crooked means that your, your moral standards, they're out of alignment. But when it says that the, the generation has become perverse, it's, it's much worse. The perverse are not just off the path, they're willingly rejecting the truth. And so when we say, 
There's man and there's woman, and this is biologically true of everyone and animals. Someone says, I do not believe that. There's a lot more. There's 40, there's 50 different ways to identify a man and a woman. But you just said there's a man and a woman. We have become so perverse and twisted. Proverbs tells us over and over again that we need wisdom. What the world needs is wisdom. They need truth, the truth of God's word. Proverbs 2, 12 and 14 says that we need wisdom to deliver us from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, of those who delight in doing evil. And listen to this, they just don't do evil. It says they rejoice in the perversity of evil. And this is the world that we live in. In Noah's time, the whole world was perverse. And what did God do? He destroyed it, preserving just Noah. In the time of Judges, everyone did what was right and what? In their own eyes. And much of it was perversion, a distortion of truth. In Jesus' own time, he said, what a wicked and perverse generation. And Paul here says during the time of the Philippians that we are living in a crooked and perverse generation. So the question is, has there been any generation that hasn't been crooked and perverse? And the answer to that is what? No. In fact, why don't you turn with me to 2 Timothy. I want to show you, just in case you weren't discouraged already, that it gets much worse. In 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this, his last letter to his disciple Timothy, and he says this in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the interesting thing. He says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And Paul says, avoid such men as these, for among them are also those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sin, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of a depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. And in verse 13, it says, but evil men and impostors, does it say they'll get better? No, it says they will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Church, what, what are we supposed to do in this wicked and perverse generation? Go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32. I think, again, this passage is enlightening, and this is why Paul goes here. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 5, we read again, they, that is Israel, they have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect. We've read that. But look what it says. But a perverse and crooked generation. And here's the key. Look at verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who brought you, who bought you, 
He has made you and established you. You see, Israel was called crooked and perverse because rather than remembering God and all that God did for them and how God rescued them and delivered them and gave them a new hope and promises of a better future, instead of remembering all that, what did they do? They grumbled. I don't like the menu here in the desert. We don't have any water. I don't like the manna. I want meat. We have too much meat. It's too hot. The people are too big and dangerous and scary. Did God really bring us out here to kill us all in the wilderness? And on and on it went. Their grumbling revealed a much deeper and more serious issue. It wasn't just the grumbling church. If there's anything, you walk away from these two messages and realize grumbling is not really the issue. The issue is my heart toward God. That's the issue. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews, again, going back to that very time in the wilderness, gives us some commentary on what's going on. Hebrews chapter 3, and put your eyes there on verse 7. The writer of Hebrews writes this. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But instead, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter. Why? Because of unbelief. You see, the, the, the clear path to being crooked and perverse has always been, do you believe God? God has told you, Christian, that he is going to perfect the work that he began. He's going to see it through. And he's working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so when we adopt a spirit of complaining and grumbling, we're saying, I'm not sure that this trial in my life is for my good. I'm not sure that what I'm going through with my spouse right now is for my good. I'm not sure with what we're going through as parents over these children is for my good. And we begin to grumble and complain. When in reality, if you are God's, if you are chosen, if you are elect, God's promise to you is everything, everything that comes your way, good or bad, difficult or easy, is for your good. 
So don't grumble because of who you are, your status. You're a child of God. You're blameless. You're innocent. You're without blemish. Don't grumble because of where you are. God has placed each of us in the midst of a a crooked and perverse generation. And now we learn here not to grumble because of how we're to live. Look, God saved you and put you on this earth. And the reason that you're still here is for one reason. Our mission is to shine as lights. Look at the text. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And I love this section. I was thinking about this all day yesterday. The reality of God when he created, and he said, let there be what? Light. And then automatically, like that, the lights appear and invade the darkness. Brothers and sisters, I am reminded that God has me alive and has you alive to be a light. That's why you're still breathing, because he wants you to be a light to a dark world. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that thrill you that God has you here to be a light to point others to Christ? Which means that we can't be religious recluses. We have to be out in the world. Too many Christians and too many churches, they retreat and they hide. It was Charles Spurgeon as he was elaborating on this verse, said, look, no, 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 our light must be a public light. He said, we, we need to let our light shine, and we will let our light shine when we have an open profession, a constant association with a Christian church, a perpetual living out of godliness, and an open declaration. But that's not all. Look, look at what else Spurgeon said. I love this. Spurgeon says, look ye, sirs, Christians are soldiers. If our soldiers were to take it into their heads that they ought never to be seen, a pretty pass things would come to. What were the soldiers worth when they shunned parade and dreaded battle? And then he says, take off your rain mentals and be packing, sirs. We want not men who must always be skulking behind a bush and dare not show themselves to friend our foe. You say, Dom, that's kind of archaic language. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if our soldiers were cowards and they never went out to battle, we'd be in a lot of trouble. That's what he's saying. And in the same way, Paul is saying, Christians, it's your responsibility. It's your privilege to be out in the world. If you're so insulated and you're not engaging with the world, How are people ever going to see the light of Christ? Pay close attention to what Paul says here. Does he want us to shine in our Christian homes, in our churches? And the answer to that is obviously what? Yes. But he says here that we are to be in the world, in the midst of, literally in the middle of, a crooked and perverse generation. The Bible's very clear. You've been saved out of the world, right? Well, we're no longer in the world, but we haven't been taken out of it. We are in the world, and we've been commissioned to go back into the world to be a light to the world. The only reason you're not in glory is because Jesus said, let your light shine before men. 
that they might see your good works and then do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. He said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and then it gives light to all those who are in the house. Look, your light might be the light that points people to Jesus. You think about your own conversion. It was because people were faithful to let their light shine that you know who Jesus is, that you repented of your sin. And what Paul is saying here is we need to do the same thing. If we are not getting our light out into the world to those who live in darkness, how else will they know that there's a better way? How else will they know how to have salvation? We need to take it upon ourselves to be the light that we've been called to be. Remember, Paul says this in Ephesians 5, you were formerly in darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of the light. And again, I'm circling back. You cannot let your light shine when you're grumbling or complaining. In fact, you know what that does? Is it dims the light. And as you begin to talk bad about other people, you're dimming the light on those other believers as well. The prophet Daniel, he concludes his amazing prophecy with these words in Daniel chapter 12. He says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Kids, you, well, maybe adults too, help me out with this. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Yes. How I wonder what you are. The reality is that when our light shines, it can't be avoided. And people will start to ask questions. Wait, what, why, why are you not jumping in the conversation? Why aren't you bad-mouthing so-and-so? Well, what, what's going on with you? Why, why are you so strange? And when they see your life and they see your light, they began to ask, why? Why are they not taking pleasure in the things that we take pleasure in? Why do they seem so satisfied with going to church? Why are they prioritizing church over sports or whatever else it is? Your light causes people to ask questions. And our shine will always come from being closer to Jesus. Listen, church. You will shine when God's steadfast love is better than life. You will shine when you walk in obedience. You will shine when out of your mouth comes gratitude. You will shine when you serve others in humility and sacrificially. You will shine when you stand together and against falsehood. You will shine when you count one another as more important than yourselves. But it's not merely just the shining that people do. It's actually what we say and why we say it. So again, we don't grumble because of who we are, our status as children of God, blameless, innocent, without blemish. We don't grumble because of where we are. Where are we at? We're in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. That is our station in life. We don't grumble because of how we're called to live. We're supposed to shine And finally, Paul tells us what we are to proclaim. And this is the saving message of the gospel. Look at verse 16. Paul says this. 
holding fast the word of life. That verb there can mean to hold fast as it's translated. And if taken in that sense, what Paul is saying is, look, we need to be grounded in the truth. We need to hold on to the truth. We need to protect the truth. We need to guard the truth. All those things are true. But another sense that we could take the word, and as some have translated it, you're not just holding on to the truth, but you're holding forth the truth. The truth is something that we love with all of our heart, and because we love it, we give it to others. And that is what Paul is saying. He's saying you're holding forth the words of life, holding out the word of life. And you ask, well, what is the word of life? It's simply the good news of the gospel. It's it's simply all that Jesus taught. It's called the word of life because that's exactly what it provides. It provides life. And as Christians, it's not just something that we hog to ourselves. It's not just something that we possess. It's something that we need to proclaim to others. You say, well, how do we do that? It's as simple as passing on the baton. You see runners, uh, imagine if a runner started running in a relay race and they never passed the baton. We'd say, what are they doing? You want it to continue? You want to not be disqualified? You need to pass the baton on. And that's exactly what we do with the gospel. We need to live in a way that is obviously, observably, measurably, noticeably, visibly different from the world, but we just can't live in such a way. You're familiar with St. Francis who said, go into all the world and make disciples. And then he said this, and use words if you have to. And I think we get the spirit of what he's saying, right? That our, that our holy lives, our holy character should attract people to Christ. But he's mistaken because every time that we live a certain way, we need to speak the words of the gospel. We're not going to make a single disciple if we don't open our mouths. I remember Dr. MacArthur, he'd always say this. He said the correct equation for evangelism is both character and content. Have you ever been mistaken for a Mormon? Oh, you you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do this, you don't do that. Well, are you a Mormon? No, not even close. But, but moral people don't send the right message. Just because you're moral or you stay away from certain things or don't watch rated R movies or, or don't go to ball games, no, that's not the gospel. God says that we need to communicate the gospel that was given. 1 John 1.5 says, this is the message that we have heard from him and announce to you that God is what? Light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, says this, It is our duty not only to hold fast, but to hold forth the word of life. Not only to hold it fast for our own benefit, but to hold it forth for the benefit of others. To hold it forth as a candlestick holds forth the candle, which makes it appear to advantage all around, or as luminaries of the heavens, which shed their influence far and wide. You see, Grace Church Monterey Bay, the reason why God has us here is so that we could be a lighthouse to the peninsula. And the lighthouse is going to light up the path to the Savior. We're all about separation. We're called to be separate from the world, but we're not about isolation. We need to take our torches into the darkness. We need to be the stars, the luminaries that God has called us to be. Because if we're not, how is the world ever going to know that they have a sweet, forgiving, loving, 
patient, merciful Savior that's abounding in loving kindness and mercy. Our light should be calling people to repentance. Let's tie it all together as we come to a close. You come back and you say, but Dom, I still don't get why this whole murmuring thing is listed right after all the stuff Paul just taught. Does our grumbling really dim our lights in this crooked and perverse generation? And then we're reminded of this. Why is darkness in the world in the first place? Darkness is in the world because people have rejected the light. John chapter 3 says this, verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. If we're speaking honestly, most people that you know that are not believers, they wouldn't consider themselves crooked and perverse. They wouldn't call themselves evil. They could point to others and say, that's what's crooked, that's what's evil, but, but, but not me. But this is what we need to understand. Hostility and rebellion and wickedness and evil is a rejection of God's word and God's will. And grumbling and complaining, the reason why it's such a big deal is because that is the voice of rebellion. Simple as that. Grumbling is an indication that the heart is on the path to perversion, pouting to God and to others that we're not getting what we deserve, that I deserve better, is communicating the heart of rebellion. And we're forgetting God's divine providence. That is what grumbling does. You know, no one commits murder without first being angry. No one jumps into a bed with another woman or another man unless they first have lust. No one goes and steals something unless first there's covetousness. Look, no one becomes hostile to God unless it begins with a heart of discontentment. And Paul says, oh, Christian, if we're going to be lights in this world, we need to find our contentment, we need to find our joy, our satisfaction, our pleasure in a God who promises always to do us good. Romans 1.21 says, For even though that they knew God, they did not honor God or what? Give thanks. We should be the complete opposite. That we are always habitually in the frame of mind of giving God thanks. A discontented, ungrateful, grumbling spirit is ultimately rejection of God's providential work in our lives. And so if we want to shine as lights in the darkness, then we need to put all manner of grumbling to death. Listen, two paths. You're going to walk out of these doors. You're going to have two roads to go down. You can go down the road of grumbling, or you can go down the road of gratitude. And if you choose to go down the road of gratitude, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be lights shining brightly in a world, pointing others to Jesus. There's an inscription on that Statue of Liberty, and it reads this. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The, wretches, the wretched refuse 
the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I will lift my lamp beside the golden door. Very inspirational. But brothers and sisters, do you realize that we have a far greater message than Lady Liberty? We have the message of the eternal gospel. The only message that saves from sin and death and hell. And there is a world that is living in darkness that needs you to be a light. And Paul says here, this is God's plan for us to impact the world for Christ's sake, to let your light shine. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how desperately we need to hear this again and again and again. Lord, we are recipients of the good news. The gospel has led us away from superstition and selfishness and addiction and despair. The gospel has created this new and better relationship with our Creator. We're no longer enemies. We're no longer under the judgment of condemnation, but we've been adopted into your family, and we enjoy salvation and rest and joy and peace. But Lord, we understand this, that there is still work to be done. We just can't go away skipping along merrily, glorying in all that belongs to us. Lord, our hearts need a break for those who don't know you yet and who are still in darkness. So Father, would you please be gracious to us? Would you allow every single member here at Grace Church Monterey Bay to shine to do whatever it takes to brighten our, light, our lamp and not dim it. Lord, would you please expose anything in our heart, any habit, any attitude, any practice, anything that is hindering the light of the Lord Jesus Christ from shining through us. Oh Lord, you are the light of the world. Isaiah said very clearly, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. O oh, Jesus, in you is life, and the life was the light of men. Help us, please. Help us, please, to shine our light so that others would know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.